0: Dana was a special child. At nine years old, she taught herself to speak Arabic. I couldn't believe it. She was always gifted, but she struggled with depression. For a time when she was a young adult, Dana was doing well. She started writing and got her own apartment in Seattle. But eventually, the depression returned. She started talking about suicide, and I was afraid she had a gun. I was so worried she would hurt herself that I called the police and asked them to take her gun. They said there was nothing they could do. I was at church one January day in 2010 when I got a weird feeling. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. After church, I asked a friend to drive me over to see my daughter Dana. When we got to her apartment, the door was locked and the music was on really loud. That was when I knew something wasn't right. I called the police right away, and the moment the police opened the door, I knew Dana was gone. She died by gun suicide on January 10, 2010. She was just 26 years old. Zoe
1: Moore That story and the stories you will hear throughout this episode are from gunresponsibility.org. The Alliance for Gun Responsibility works to end the gun violence crisis in their community and to promote a culture of gun ownership that balances rights and responsibilities.
2: This is E-Impulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Bullet Points, Part 3, Assess.
1: Welcome
0: back to E-Impulse. Oh, man, Sarah, hearing the names and stories of those victims of gun violence is tough, dude. I cried writing those stories down.
1: Yeah, you know, we integrated these stories in this podcast as a reminder that there are numbers and data that we can use to understand the issue. But the numbers represent moms, dads, brothers, daughters, friends, our community. This is part three of four in an in-depth look at firearm injury prevention with the Bullet Points Project from UC Davis. And we're still talking with Dr. Amy Barnhorst, the physician leader for Bullet Points and our series guest and expert.
0: Because gun violence is still a multidisciplinary thing, (laughs) we also partnered with Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a UC Davis pediatric trauma surgeon, and he is the podcast host of Country Hits.
1: So far, we've covered Approach, There was a lot of self-education, introspection, and humility as we start these conversations.
0: And now bullet points suggest the next step is assess. So that's what we're going to discuss today.
1: Let's get to it.
2: So as we talk about assessment, do you think that we should ask every patient in every setting about firearms in their home, or are there sort of specific clinically relevant times when we should make that approach? Who's at risk, and who's at the highest risk, and when should we be making these interventions?
3: It's a great question, and there's some debate about whether or not this should be something we do universal screening for. Ask every patient if they have a firearm in the home. As I think we all know, being practicing physicians, nobody loves universal screening questions. We have a whole list of them we're supposed to ask, and you just kind of run through them like, you don't smoke, do you? You don't do drugs, do you? You don't have a gun at home, do you? Patients know what answer you want. They just kind of give them out there. You check off your boxes. And there's no real deep, meaningful, individualized discussion about risks and benefits and plans. So particularly given that firearms can be more alienating than asking people things about exercise and smoking even— we don't recommend that there is something we universally screen for. And that also, that saves time, but it also saves, I think, rapport with patients. And really, we want to think about who has risk factors for firearm injury and screen those people and then take an individualized approach to the treatment plan, if you will. So we want to think about folks who are in a situation, clinically or socially, where a gun would increase the risk of injury or death.
1: So I'm biased in the ER because that's the population I see. But where are these at-risk patients presenting? Yeah,
3: where are they? Well, they're everywhere.
1: (laughs) But like I don't do a lot
3: of training for, say, urologists or dermatology never asks me to give grand rounds. It's, well, anyone who works in emergency settings, so you or me doing emergency psychiatry, I mean, arguably almost all of my folks are at risk, particularly because of the risk of suicide, People in primary care settings often see some of the situations where risk would present. And I include the broader sense of primary care, which is ER docs, ob psychiatry, internal medicine, family practice, surgeons, obviously, because you guys are dealing with the sequelae of firearm injury. So you're kind of on the, on the downstream end, on the back end, but you're obviously seeing people at risk because oftentimes they've already been shot or they've been involved in some other violent altercation. And that's a risk factor, too.
0: Joshua's smile is amazing. It felt like the sun shining through the window on a warm summer day. He had the cheesiest grin, told jokes, gave great hugs, and loved his family and friends. He always said hello, gave you a ride, cheered on his teammates, even when he was finished racing, and he could even be a prankster on occasion. One evening in September 2008, Josh was staying at a friend's apartment when he answered a knock at the door. During an attempted robbery, gunman shot Joshua while forcing entry into his friend's apartment. His friend was also shot, but survived after surgery. Joshua was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital several hours after the horrific shooting. I will never forget that 4 a.m. phone call in September 2008 on what was the first day of school telling me my son had been shot. I will never forget arriving at the hospital, the same hospital where my beautiful boy was born 20 years before, and finding out that a bullet killed my son. The image of him lying on a cold metal slab, murdered, blackened eye, stripped of all clothes, and personality is forever embedded in my brain. My tall, athletic, smiling son, full of laughter and love, now gone forever. I will never forget telling Joshua's brother that he would never see his brother again. Kim Gabinton.
2: We've talked a lot about approach in the prior episode, but taking that approach, bringing it into that assessment, how do you ask these questions?
3: How you ask depends on what's the risk. So some of the situations where, you know, you're seeing a patient and you think, oh, yeah, okay, I need to ask about this. I've now assessed that this is a person who's in that risk group. It depends what they're at risk of. People who, for example, have depression or a lot of social stressors or severe untreated mental illness, even if it's not a depressive illness— Early stages of dementia, chronic pain, these are all folks who have risk factors for suicide. and So they should be asked about access to firearms. Even if they're not saying, I'm going to kill myself now, they may get into a phase in the future. And you want to kind of think preventatively. You know, if your pain gets really bad because you can't refill your medications, if you relapse into drinking heavily again, what might you do about the firearm in your home if you have one? Um, Anyone who has kids at home obviously has a risk factor because... Kids are just risk factors for lots of things, but if you have a kid in the home, you should be asked if you have a firearm in the home. Anyone who's in an abusive relationship, a domestic violence situation, an acrimonious breakup should probably be screened because we know that firearms in the context of domestic violence really add to the lethality. And then, of course, anyone who's making threats or posting creepy stuff or saying things like, I'm going to shoot at my school. Obviously, that person needs to be assessed for access to firearms. So then the next question of like, how do you, how do you broach the topic is going to be dependent on what you're concerned about. Is it an acute risk? Like right now, this person, we have to separate them from their guns? Or is this like, we want to have an ongoing primary care style conversation about planning if things should happen a certain way in the future.
1: Okay, so I'll give you a hypothetical case then. So let's say we have a 28-year-old woman. She was assaulted by her long-term boyfriend, who's the father of her five-year-old. And she was found by her friend, brought to the ED. She has an epidural hematoma, and she needs to be admitted. So what can I do to assess her safety when it comes to guns? How do you set the scene for that conversation? And how do you start that conversation? What do I need to know about specifically? What if she reports that she has guns and she's worried for her safety? What if she reports that he has a gun, he's threatening to kill her if she leaves him? What can we do for her and that kid?
3: This is one of those situations where what Jonathan mentioned earlier about putting it in the context of other risk factors. So bringing it up, you know, if you're talking to a pediatric patient, bringing it up with the questions about the swimming pools, fence, and the, you know, the medications that should be locked away. When you're thinking about discharging her, you're going to think in a broad picture about, like, what all does she need to keep her safe and healthy? She probably needs to be away from the sky. She needs, you know, some sort of housing or shelter. She's going to need medication refills if she's on those. She's going to need someone to come in and get her stitches taken out. And she's going to need to have the firearm removed from this equation or all the firearms removed from the equation. So I think opening that with her is like, okay, we're thinking about getting you home and back into your life as safely as possible. Here are some of the things that we're worried about and that we want to address. And you put the gun on that problem list. And then on that problem list is her guns and his guns. And those may be dealt with separately. In the case of hers, you may want to have a discussion about like the risks. And this is where hopefully the statistics will have an impact. But letting her hear a little bit about how lethal it can be when there is a firearm in the midst of a domestic violence situation. It, you know, increases the chance that the woman will die by a factor of five. And so then talking to her about, can she have somewhere she can get her guns out of the mix completely, like locked away, safe in a place he won't know about where he can't access. And she may be willing to do that voluntarily and collaboratively. But then, what do we do about his guns? And that's where you might have to think about something like a protective order, a domestic violence restraining order, or a gun violence restraining order—some sort of legal intervention that may have other protections as well, but might also allow for law enforcement to confiscate his firearm temporarily or more
2: permanently. So, just keep throwing difficult problems right, and scenarios <laughs> to you. Like, here's here's a one that that we've seen many times. Um, 17-year-old kid comes in, he's got a through-and-through through gunshot wound to the calf, so he's
1: mm.
2: fine, you know, the sort of gunshot yeah. wound that, like many gunshot wounds, gets sent home from the emergency department, right? Wow. But you look in the chart, you see, oh, this is not his first gunshot wound. He's been shot again a year ago, right? And uh, you ask him what's going on, and he says, well, I was just standing in the corner, minding my own business, right? Like, <laughs> this just happened. Biggest risk factor again, for trauma. And there's like a big group of people starting to gather in the waiting room looking forward to this guy coming out so how do you figure out like is he safe like from a medical standpoint he's he's ready to go but is he safe to go and what can you do
3: yeah i mean that's a tough one and especially when the patient is not going to be forthcoming and collaborative about what risks they can mitigate with you depending on what his social setting is and what risk factors he has for firearm violence, like was he out, you know, hunting with his drunk uncles again and got shot in the leg? Is he? Does he live in a community where there's a lot of crime and firearm violence and a lot of the teenagers carry guns to school to protect themselves? Thinking about marshalling the resources in those communities. And one of the things we've um, seen a lot more of in the last few years are these hospital-based violence intervention programs that are, we have the wraparound program here at Davis, Where, you know, it's not kind of this more hierarchical setup of the doctor telling the kid you need to do this or you need to stop doing that, but you're getting more um, peers involved, more people from the community, more of like a grassroots wraparound approach that can help maybe not get the kid's attention in the waiting room and get him to, you know, confess to everything that happened, but hey, check in with him over, you know, coffee or on the basketball court in a week and just open a conversation and then follow up with him and then maybe eventually hear more about that you know his school has a lot of violence in it he doesn't feel comfortable there and so he and his friends started carrying guns and what can they do to support him in alternative employment or educational opportunities or other you know mental health needs that he might have and try to try to help slowly move him away from some of the factors that might have played into that.
1: Yeah, we actually did an episode on the wraparound program oh, cool. and and talked about a lot of the things they do. And I think that kind of longitudinal approach is yeah. really important, that it's not just going to be when I see them in the ED or right. the surgeon who sees them on the floor. It keeps going after that in terms of getting involved with their community, their family, et cetera.
3: Yeah. And that's a, you know, it's going back to how in medicine, we want things to be binary. Like appendix infected, take it out, done, We fixed. You know, it's not going to be like that. There's a desire when we see people in that emergency setting to like fix the problem now and get it done. And sometimes in this situation, we have to recognize like we're not going to be able to do that. We may not even be the ones who have that power. It may be the school teacher or the basketball coach or the, you know, the uncle who's not the drunk uncle shooting off guns or whoever, you know, is, is in that person's life and community that maybe we can work with on a collaboration with this kid or maybe we just have to kind of pass it off to them but having that multidisciplinary kind of in their culture approach i think is really important
2: yeah that respect for like individual yeah. circumstances yeah,
3: yeah exactly and that maybe we we can't be the ones that are the credible messengers all the time
1: So I'm gonna throw one more at you. And I feel like this is something I'm seeing more and more with our aging population. So let's say we have an 85 year old man coming in with his daughter three months after his wife died and his daughter is worried that he's suicidal. He has a history of alcohol abuse. Um, She's worried about his mental state. How do you approach this conversation and how do you set the stage for it? How do you actually ask about those guns? how do you get him to admit maybe he is suicidal or how do you have that conversation and what do we tell his daughter?
3: Well, everyone knows their 80-year-old fathers are super flexible and willing to do whatever (laughs) they ask. So, (laughs) you know, this is a hard one because I think that uh, folks get entrenched in their ways and they get entrenched in their belief that the things they're doing are the right things and they don't necessarily want to change and they're not willing to make as many adjustments to take care of their health maybe as younger people are and so it's going to be a challenge this is where a harm reduction approach can go a long way and recognizing that this might be one of those sort of long-term primary care style conversations and not a quick visit to the emergency room fix it one and done kind of thing but marshalling the daughter is always good putting it in the context of like we care about you we want to reduce your risk maybe not going after removing all the firearms from the home right away today but thinking about hey ever been a situation when you saw someone else who was drinking and had access to a gun and did something bad? Have you lost any friends to suicide? Have you ever been in a bad space where, where you were drinking and you thought about getting your gun or maybe you've even handled it in that situation? Kind of taking that slow stepwise approach to questioning to get them to see, yeah, maybe this is kind of risky. And opening the door to future conversations, I mean, that's the success is if they can walk out of that encounter without that door having slammed shut. But it can be really tricky. And I think it's, you again, you can put it in the context of other risk factors. So, you know, while with kids, we're thinking about swimming pools and car seats and lock boxes with older people, we may be talking about things, and this may be down the road for this guy, we may be talking about things like cooking by themselves and access to car keys. And that those things maybe aren't going to go away right away, but they're going to be slowly increased in supervision. Like you can drive and you can cook, but there needs to be somebody in the passenger seat or in the kitchen nearby. And then eventually you'll need a little more supervision, but we're not there yet, you know. So why don't you let your daughter hang on to your gun for a little bit, but you can still use it. She'll she'll give it to you when you want to go hunting or if you want to take it to the range, but it goes back to her house for now. And then, you know, maybe in the future you work on, then you can only use it supervised. And so kind of taking those the, the slower stepwise approach, if you get the impression that, you know, going all in for, for removing his access is not going to be a big hit with him.
1: Yeah, I like that in kind of creating the scenario where the daughter can be your ally there in a safe, soft, you know, yeah. compassionate way where she's not fighting against her father, right. but also maybe can help in this situation. Yeah,
0: On a dark, cold night in 1984, my abusive and imbalanced first husband towered over me with a gun, blinded by rage. He threatened to kill me and people I love. He even threatened to kill himself. Why didn't I just leave? It sounds simple enough, but nothing is more complicated. Victims of domestic violence are five times more likely to be killed when a gun is involved. And the most lethal time is during or after separation. After months of careful planning, I finally made my escape. I spent five days driving from Tennessee to Seattle, struggling through my tears to look in the rearview mirror. I was terrified that I might see him and that I might never again see the family he had forced me to leave behind. He tracked me here and bullied, threatened, and stalked me for years afterwards. Back then, I didn't even think to call the police. Domestic violence wasn't yet a crime— And besides, I thought staring down the barrel of a gun doesn't leave a mark. No bloody nose, black eye, or broken bones. Just a scar on my soul. Therese Todd.
2: What you're talking about makes me think about something I've been thinking a lot about in other contexts, which is populations that are at higher risk. And one thing that I learned recently that came as a surprise to me, um, though maybe it shouldn't have, is uh, that patients with neurodiversity, so autistic patients or patients with other neurodevelopmental differences or disabilities, have a much higher risk of attempting suicide. Any particular suggestions around that population specifically, around our autistic patients um, who maybe don't, aren't processing things in the same way or are di- more difficult to reach sort of through the standard approaches?
3: You know, people who have mental illness, while they're often thought of as being at risk for violence, they're not much higher risk for perpetrating violence than the rest of the population, but they are at a higher risk for suicide. So it wouldn't surprise me um, that patients with autism or other, you know, neurodiversity might be included in that group. And I think it's one of those things that as a parent, you know, you have a lot to worry about when you have a kid who's having mental health struggles, mental illness, autism, autism spectrum disorders. And so firearms may not be on your list. You know, it's just one of those things you might not quite get to. And you may not even really think about the risk of suicide because, you know, we all wear blinders when it comes to our own kids. And they're not, you know, getting the CDC reports every year and seeing the numbers. They're not, you know, getting this influx of the stats to their inbox all the time. So maybe just approaching the the idea with caregivers of, Kind of like, you know, you have this, and so that puts you at risk of these other things. Just the same way we do with other disorders. You have this, and it's going to put you at risk of other things. And talking about, and I think this is so important, actually, in so many situations, but talking about suicide more openly as a risk. And then the next step being, and, and a risk factor for completed suicide, is firearm access. Because... People don't want to talk about it. They may know. It's like firearm They all seem to know somebody who killed themselves with a gun, but it's not on their forefront because nobody talks about it. It just gets kind of swept under the rug. And I think that's true for a lot of people who have um, family members with mental illness or substance use problems. Suicide is just this, like, it, you know, it's getting better, but it's this very stigmatized topic. And bringing it up with family members is like, hey, this is a potential risk factor down the road. Not because I'm thinking it's your kid specifically right now, but just... You know, statistically it is. And here are some steps you can take to mitigate that risk. And we do know that one of the biggest things you can do to mitigate someone's risk of suicide is to make sure they don't have access to lethal means. And in the U.S., that overwhelmingly means guns.
2: I think that's such a valuable point, too, because in medicine as physicians, we don't typically have a problem with difficult conversations no. about awkward stuff, right? Are you having testicular pain? Right. Like, right. that's not something you bring right. up, Right. Anywhere else, but we're fine with that, right? Sexual histories, we do it all the time. When was your last period to complete stranger, right? But I think even within medicine, suicidality is... A hard topic, yeah, not, not least because it's a big problem in our profession, yeah. But also because I think it is—it crosses a boundary that's challenging for us, much the way like gun politics is challenging yeah. for us. It's asking someone a really personal question that we're less comfortable with than yeah. the sort of like physical exam stuff, right? But just remembering that like we as physicians are in that like uniquely empowered space to ask about awkward topics and and be taken seriously and not be stigmatized or resented for it, right?
3: yeah and it's it's so true that we we do and say things in our clinical encounters that are so intimate and so personal. and i I do think a lot of folks aren't comfortable with that conversation about suicide because it's stigmatized because it's a problem within our profession. And then also because a lot of folks perceive and I think this is, you know, potentially true, they don't have the information. they don't have the tools to do anything about it. So you know, it's like, why screen for a disease you can't treat? If you ask somebody, and they say, well, why, yes, doc, I am, in fact, thinking about taking my own life. And then you're stuck thinking like, okay, what do I do now? Do I have, is there anything I can do? And so that's part of why we put this curriculum together also is there are things you can do, but people, I as a psychiatry resident who worked for years in a crisis unit where I was evaluating people who were suicidal every day. It was a while before I learned that the number one thing you can do is make sure they don't have access to lethal means. That was not taught to me in training.
1: I think this is all really important to this last piece we've been talking about because it's not only those quote at risk populations, right? You talk about physicians, Mm -hmm. um, you talk about these very high performing students, LGBTQ, trans youth, you know, we know that there are a lot of suicides going on in these populations as well. And so being able to normalize that discussion and um, reduce the stigma and start those conversations, I think that's a way to open the door to Finding the risk and then talking about removing the firearms from that situation.
0: I was 43 years old when I was shocked to find myself flat on my stomach with my arms around my head, waiting for the gunshots that would kill me. I couldn't hear anything but an overwhelming ringing in my ears. I couldn't see anything because my face was pressed to the floor of my office in the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. But I could smell. And to this day, the smell of industrial carpet is the smell of waiting to die at any second. On that beautiful summer afternoon in July 2006, an armed stranger showed up in the hallway outside of my office, shouting angry, ugly words about Israel and Jews. I woke up in the hospital a week later from a medically induced coma. I was in the hospital for six weeks. During that time, I learned that my colleague Pam was killed in the shooting and that four other colleagues were in the hospital with me. I found out the shooter had held a 9mm Glock handgun against my side and fired a hollow-point bullet that exploded as it tore through my abdominal organs. I underwent 20 surgeries, about one surgery every two months for three years. Cheryl Stumbo. Check: After you have identified an approach you are ready to assess. This is not your universal screening situation. Identify patients at risk for firearm injuries. Are patients that come in with a history of violence, mental health concerns, interpersonal violence, children at home or changes in cognition are some patients that are at higher risk. Open the conversation with normalizing phrases that set that risk in the context of that individual's life partner with the patient and support system to create a plan that meets the patient's safety goals. If you have a community-based violence prevention group, work with them. If you don't, go back and listen to our episode, Wrap Around, and start your own. This is about harm reduction, not gun elimination. So it
1: may not be easy, clean, or ideal. Keep listening for part four in our bullet point series act. In the meantime,
0: share this series with a colleague. We all have a part to play in this process.
1: Thank you to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for supporting groups like Bullet Points.
0: And thank you to OM Productions for supporting these projects as well.
1: See you next time.